Today's episode is a deep dive with Bart Matarata, a good friend and advisor to Starship Ventures. For 11 years, Bart led the core infrastructure teams for Google Search and was a key executive in scaling the company. After Google, he co-founded AltSchool, an ambitious education technology platform. He later served as CTO at Dropbox and most recently joined Coinbase as their first fellow. For this episode, we're going to focus on his time at Google to hear about how Search actually works and learn about the monumental challenges the teams had to overcome, often in real time. All right. Thanks for doing this, man. Thanks, man. It's good to be here. Let's kick things off with your personal background and what drew you into tech in the first place. Yeah, great story. The long form of it is my parents were immigrants. My dad was an aeronautical physicist. He spent a lot of time studying math and science, a lot of degrees. And for his family and for him especially, education was like a route out of, you know, where they were born, which is a rural village in India, what's now Pakistan. And so education was paramount for him. It was a way to better yourself. And my mom was a OBGYN, a surgeon in India. And she also came from a family where education was paramount. And so they immigrated to the U.S. in the 60s and had to start all over again because you weren't allowed to bring a lot of cash with you. My mom's medical degree was not recognized in the U.S. So she had to actually go work as a janitor in the medical library at SUNY Buffalo to get access to the books so that she could study so she could pass the exams again, the medical exams again, so she could be a resident again, advising surgeons who that she was more experienced than. I mean, it was crazy what my parents had to do. And as part of that, they just beat into my head this idea that education is paramount. And so growing up, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, mostly studying. I wasn't allowed to take uh, a summer job of any kind. My dad wanted me in school, so I would spend my summers going to the local universities studying. I remember I just recently read a letter I wrote to my sister where I was in between going from one college on Long Island where I grew up to another college during my summer taking two different classes. I think I was taking uh, some computer classes and some calculus classes wow. in, in high school. And it was just all I knew. I just grew up like all it was all education I viewed technology as kind of a fascinating escape. It was a topic I really enjoyed. My parents got me uh, a computer when I was 10 years old. Well, they got one for the family. Actually, they got a computer, uh, a, a TRS-80, and they got a piano. And they didn't really know which one we were going <laughs> to go with. So like, we were, literally, we were required to play 30 minutes of piano every day and do 30 minutes on the computer every day. Because my parents were like, one of these is clearly going to be like successful for the kids. And so they made all of us do it, uh, my, my older three siblings and I. And I just found computers were great. Being in this virtual world where you can create something, you can like write instructions, it has to follow the instructions, you can build things, you know. I started with simple programs from books and I started to build graphical interfaces and I was just, I was totally lost to it. And so eventually I just found that I more and more gravitated towards this idea that you can build amazing things in software and software was something I could clearly decompose and understand and it really appealed to the way I thought. I was kind of hopelessly in love with technology from a super young age. Just building stuff as a tinkerer and... yeah. And I, I always had a side project of some kind. Like when I was in high school, it was a small boarding school. They did assigned seating for everybody at dinner. 
I used their old clunky mainframe there to write some software that basically did seat assignments every week. And I would do a printout every week of where everyone was sitting and every, it had to abide by certain rules. No person sat at the same table twice in a month or you know, you didn't wind up sitting with the same people and it kind of rotated things around. And it was fun, it was fun solving these problems and it, it actually like had a material impact in the world. So I really just enjoyed going deeper and deeper and deeper into that. And then I went to Colgate, a very small liberal arts college. I think there were six graduating computer science majors my year, which it was a weird choice, I think, in some ways. But ironically, it, it greatly helped me because one of the things that I found is that one of the reasons why I was successful as an engineer is that I really learned in high school and college how to be a good writer and how like get, to get a, a more well-rounded education, how to be articulate how to convey complex concepts, break them down into simpler terms, how to meet people where they are and bring them along in the, in the story and the narrative. And very often the problems that you're solving in technology are not ones you can solve on your own. You must solve them with teams of people. And the better you can communicate with those people, and the better you understand things and the better you can break down complex concepts, the greater the chance you can get everyone working together and be super successful. You know, and that was something that I wound up really employing at Google pretty heavily we had massive numbers of incredibly good formally taught computer science folks, but I was able to like sit down and write essays about what we were doing in ways that were more compelling. And sometimes that made all the difference uh, in getting teams to be really effective. Hmm. How does it feel writing code? You've written a lot of it. <laughs> in, in some ways, you're almost <clears throat> having to role play as a computer. Yeah. <laughs> you know? it, it's very precise, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I guess I don't really think about it as role playing as a computer, but I think of it like surfing. I don't surf, so sure. you know, yeah. bear with me here. But like my friends who surf, they describe it that once you actually get good at surfing, you don't think about the board. You don't think about the wave. You just are you one just with the whole experience. Uh, and I tend to think of software engineering as very much like that. There's a thing that you're trying to build and you're shaping it as you go and you're dealing with many different components of it. And it depends, you know, are you in the, the ideation phase, the design phase, the laying out the algorithms, implementing it, testing it, deploying it. There's different phases to it. I enjoy being in that flow state of holding the problem in my head and seeing it clearly and knowing what to do next without it necessarily being mechanical. Like I have to stop and think, sure. wait, what do I do next? What do I do next? What do I do next? And it's hard to get to that flow state. It's hard to get to that state where like you're not just thinking about each individual piece, but you see the whole problem. And the larger the problem gets, the harder it is to do that. And frankly, I've spent the last 10 years of my career mostly operating as an engineering executive where your time is so sliced up that you don't really get that opportunity to go deep. I tried to keep a technical side project at all times just so that I can have that experience because I really miss it in my day. You know, but it's always like, I, you know, I have all kinds of little technical projects that I'm always hacking on um, just to, so that to remind myself that like, this is something I really do and I really enjoy um, so that right. I stay rooted in the parts of it that I really like. So you graduate, then what are some of the first roles you take on? Well, I graduated with a CS degree in 92. That was not a particularly great time in the job market. So I reached out through my alumni connections and I kind of somewhat miraculously got a job at Sun Microsystems. And mm. Sun Microsystems back in the day was the place. Yep. Like they were at the top of the game in Unix. They were building hardware. They were almost like the Rebel Alliance, you know, against the mainframes. It was a great place. So many top-notch engineers worked there. And it was kind of amazing to be able to walk down the hall 
and talked to the guys who were like working on the kernel of the of the operating system who knew all these things inside and out. And it was a great opportunity for someone right out of college to go learn. And I started off writing device drivers for graphics cards. It was kind of a deep and esoteric, complicated challenge where you had to really understand the fundamentals and the internals of the systems. And I didn't love it. You know, I was okay at it. I wasn't great at it. I didn't, as with most things, it was close, but it wasn't, it was in the same, the right space, but it wasn't exactly my passion. Sure. Like the, the work was really, really complex and nitpicky and I didn't derive a huge amount of satisfaction out of it, but it was a great forcing function to go learn a bunch of things that I just hadn't been confronted with in my formal education. I stayed at Sun for a couple of years and then the web happened. Uh, Mosaic, the first web browser appeared and I was enthralled with that. I mean, like here was a thing where you could write a small amount of markup and you could then create a user experience. So at the time, if you wanted to build a user experience, you had to go learn the innards of all these complex graphics toolkits and you had to string them together and systems were not very evolved. There weren't a ton of abstractions and you could build a nice user interface, but it was painful and nitpicky and it took a lot of work to create something that was not particularly awesome. But then the web appeared and the web basically added a layer of abstraction that made it easier to create compelling user experiences. And so I started playing with that and Sun kind of sat at this interesting epicenter. Java was just emerging. Sun was, their slogan was the network is the computer. And they were really beginning to push into this concept that you could build a network of systems and the interactions in the network is what made it valuable. And so it was kind of this awesome place to like go play around with web technology. So I moved into a group that was doing literally web not even web 1.0, it was like web 0.8, you know, and I started playing around with Java as it was still called Oak back then. I remember Sun was all business, but they also like to showcase cool technology. I wrote a game that you could play just by the, the original CGI scripts. I wrote a game that you could play just by kind of clicking little tiles on a board and it became really popular inside Sun and Sun eventually launched it on its homepage ultimately at Sun, my reputation was not for the systems I built, but for all the side projects I had. So I had like hmm. that game, which is very popular. Then I left Sun and I flipped through a bunch of small startups because Sun was this weird monoculture. It was all focused around a certain technology, but it was clear that the PC was coming and was beginning to displace the mainframe world. So I went and I worked for a bunch of startups in that space. And I learned so much about, you know, just P uh, PC world. Yeah. 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 Yeah, like I, I had never operated in a Microsoft environment. So just learning about, mm -hmm. well, I had maybe a little bit in one internship, but learning that, learning how businesses work. I worked for a startup that got acquired. I worked for a startup that went under. It was just really interesting to go see how businesses actually work because I never had any real experience with that. And then at some point in 2002, Google cold called me and went through the whole interview process and they made me an offer. And then simultaneously, a friend of mine was working at another company and that company made me an offer. And at the time, I thought search was kind of a solved problem and I wasn't impressed with the types of things they were telling me. And I, I didn't really understand that Google was so successful that they were being very, very close-lipped about what they were doing. I just kind of came away not being excited by Google, so I turned them down. I took this job, I took a job at VA Linux. Were they running ads at that point? 
they, they had just had they started to run ads. This is 2002. I mm-hmm. think, if I remember correctly, they were doing about a million dollars in revenue a day, but they weren't talking about it. Right. So, like, as an interviewer, like, I had no idea. No idea what's on the other side. No of the idea what was going on. What I should have known, in retrospect, is from the caliber of the interviews and the difficulty of the interview, that the people there were exceptional. I was too green to understand. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I was 32 and I still was too green to understand what that really meant. Now, I don't really regret it. I went to work at VA Linux on SourceForge and I made some of the best friends of my life there who I'm still exceptionally good friends with today. But I still had this like nagging like, oh, God, but maybe I should have gone to Google. But they called me the last Friday of every month at 3 p.m. I'd get a phone call. Like I was on someone's calendar. I don't think a lot of people turned them down at that point. Anyway, they would call me and be like, hey, just so you know, offer still open. Here's what it is now. And had they told you at this point any details of what you'd be working on? Well, so at the time, Google didn't really work that way. What Google was doing was they had one pipeline. They were pulling talent. Yeah, they are pulling talent. And then you had this internal process of assigning talent. So, you know, it's instead of like you go to the grocery store and you can like pick the line you want to wait in. They were like, there's one line, you get to the front of the line, and then you go to whichever cashier. So you'd get to the front of the line and then a team would kind of requisition you. So in like 2004, basically, I was like, all right, this company is obviously going somewhere. I have a ton of friends who work there now. I got to go do it. So I go back. They put me through a very basic interview to make sure I hadn't been, you know, lobotomized Mm -hmm. in the intervening two years. (laughs) And then they hired me, but I didn't know what I was going to do. I had thought at the time, because I'd spent so much time in Java and because the people who interviewed me like were on the ad side of the business, I thought I was going to work on ads. But it turns out that I wound up working on search. So there was a VP, maybe he was only a director at the time, Bill Corrin. He just like picked me out of a lineup and said, I want this guy to work on that problem. And the problem they assigned me to was the, the kind of the, the infra piece of infrastructure called GWIS, the Google web server, which was like a monolithic C slash C++ application that ran on their fleet of servers that basically served the Google homepage and search results pages. It was a massive, tedious beast of a project. Pretty much everyone who worked on it had decided to go work on something else. And Google kind of at the time had a culture of letting engineers choose what they worked on. It was kind of a little closer to a holacracy than most companies. And everyone else had decided they didn't want to work on this anymore. So I basically wound up being one of two engineers who worked on it. The other guy was in the process of leaving as well. And I convinced him to stick around for a couple of months. Well, leadership convinced him to stick around for a couple of months and help me ramp up. And then I convinced him to stick around a little bit longer and make it fun. And the two of us together wound up being the two infra guys behind the piece of infra that was basically served Google's homepage and search results page. We used to call this the neck of Google, the soft, squishy thing that all the air and the food and the nerves and the blood and the oxygen like flowed through mm-hmm. um, because it basically was a fragile, very like brittle piece of software that everybody needed to change to launch anything in search and that all of our search ads were deployed on, which was like 98% of Google revenue. Wow. And we had to push it every week. It was constantly breaking. It had very few tests of any kind. It was like a massive manual process and no one wanted to work on it. You know, there's two types of people. There's forgers and refiners. People who forge ahead and then people who take that space and refine and refine. 
And Google at the time had a lot of forgers, a lot of people who were like, let's move into this new space, invent this new thing, deploy it, get it working. But they didn't have as many people who were like, okay, now that this thing is working, I'm going to own it and maintain it and make it a couple of percentage points better every week, you know, hmm. in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Google was beginning to accumulate those people, but they didn't have a lot of them. They had so many green frontier, edge of the woods guys who were out there doing cool stuff. And I was one of the early people coming in and saying, no, 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 I'm going to take this thing and I'm going to make it awesome. I'm going to make it the gold standard. My career has always been, I start off as an engineer, I become a tech lead, then I become a manager, and then I don't like management and I egoically can't go back to being an engineer because it feels like a demotion. So I quit the company, go on to the next one. I did that a lot as I was maturing. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it deeply frustrated many, many people I worked for. And to those of you, if you're listening, I apologize. And I went to Google and I swore a mighty oath. I was like, I'm not going to do management. I'm just going to be doing engineering. And I did engineering 2004, 2005, 2006. I was really enjoying it. I was writing a lot of code. I was doing a TL. But I was really beginning to feel this problem is more than I can solve on my own. And it is more than just the technology side. It involves the people side. I need to get more ownership of the problem, which means I also need to take on some management. Now, I can do management. I'm a pretty good manager. But it's not like the first and foremost thing that I like to do. I like Mm -hmm. to be in the technology, but I viewed this as an absolutely necessary thing to take on to accomplish what I thought was a big and meaningful mission. So I go to my boss and I'm like, listen, um, I've done management before. I really think I need to take this on. I'm going to take this on. And he's like, yeah, no, I don't want you to be a manager. Dude, what are you talking about? Like you have more problems than you have solutions. I'm showing up at the solution. I know I can do this. I've got a track record of doing it. And it wasn't until like months later that I worn him down that I finally figured out what had happened is my prior boss had come and told him and said, hey, Ben, if you let Bart be a manager, he'll quit. So don't let him be a manager. <laughs> so it was like, just like refusing. He wouldn't tell me why, but he like refused, refused, refused. Uh, I eventually wore him down and I became a manager of a relatively small team. So I started off with just me and this one other guy. There were two teams. There was the, the kind of like the backend server and the UI teams. And then I kind of took on both of those teams and then I grew them and I hired First, I was one of several line managers. Then I hired more managers underneath me and I became a director, but I stayed on the technical track. So I joined as a senior staff engineer. I became a staff engineer. Now, Google, a staff engineer basically is you have a lot of autonomy over your projects. Senior software engineer, you're kind of assigned a project. Staff engineer, you're starting and operating your own project. Then senior staff engineer, where you're running several large projects And then principal engineer, where you're deep into the architecture of the broader system. I mean, I'm generalizing a lot because every Mm -hmm. person is different. And then distinguished engineer. And I was being promoted to fellow when I left. The reason why I was successful at Google, there were several reasons. But one of them was simply because search was so critical to Google. And I had managed to build a great team and execute well on it. And as Google grew, search grew, my problem grew. And I was able to navigate this shift. Mm -hmm. So let's set the stage of the company a bit. It's 2004. You get pulled into search. Mm -hmm. Google had just begun to run ads, and that's the revenue engine of the company. How many searches per day at this point? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So the actual search queries, when I joined, we were probably doing about four to 500 million search queries a day. Four to 500 million? Yeah. 
That's actually a very small number. Seems like a large number. And at the time, <laughs> seems like a crazy large number. Yeah. Fast forward, when I left Google in 2015, that infrastructure was probably serving somewhere in the 20 to billion, 20 to 30 billion queries a day. Wow. Um, but the weird thing about this is when we joined in 2004, it was solidly web 1.0. So your web browser makes a request and gets back a complete HTML page response. When I joined, we were doing like four to 500 million search queries a day, but it was complete queries. In 2008 or 2009, we pulled off one of the most amazing magic tricks that I've ever been able to do, which was we replaced the web 1.0 search application with the web 2.0 equivalent of it without anyone noticing. Like we literally swapped out the search experience of getting an entire HTML response back for one that was actually secretly a container that mm. was getting just parts of it back, but assembling it into a page that looks the same without anyone, Anybody, no yeah. without anyone noticing. And it's crazy to think that we were doing this at probably like, if not the largest, one of the largest web scales in the world. Right. We were doing it in a way where still at that point, 95% of Google revenue rested on it. It took us a while. It took us first coming up with the idea and then building it and then the rollout. The whole process probably took us two full years. Sergey originally went off in a closet and gave us an OKR to do it in a quarter. It took us two years to do it. But we did it in two years at scale with backwards compatible URLs in a way that, for the most part, nobody noticed. I feel like in my lifetime, I've encountered Google down. <laughs> Less than five times. Well, you know, we know what's funny is um, Google's reputation for uptime was so legendary that very often when people get a new computer, the first website they go to is Google. Test it, yeah. And if Google doesn't respond, people blame their service provider, not Google. If it's very, I still very, do that. If Google doesn't load, something's yeah, wrong with something the wrong network with your computer, or, the computer, right? yeah. or your cable modem, <laughs> or you start rebooting things. Right. It, I mean, we it was legendary. We had zero outages when I was there for 11 years wow. for that system. Now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that there weren't times when search was down for some people. We would have network congestion issues. We would have crashes. We would have failed searches of some kind. Like the monolithic server would sometimes crash and all the results it was serving, but we never had a global outage and we never even had a significant outage. We had some situations where we had issues with one of our vendors who was doing DNS resolution and then people couldn't get to Google. Mm. But like in terms of if you could make a request to our server, overwhelmingly you'd get a response. And we, we were operating at four and a half nines of uptime. So that's 99.995% uptime and availability, mm. which basically means three minutes of downtime a month globally. Wow. So when we talk about the numbers, right, it was four to 500 million. But the really interesting thing is we only had about, in any given month, we only had maybe 30 to 40 engineers contributing code to GWIS. So think about this. Search in 2004, 2005 was one of the world's largest web apps, right? And there weren't that many sites doing more traffic than Search. In order for us to stay ahead, we had to innovate. We had to be able to actually launch new features. When you launch a new feature, you have to change the user experience. To change the user experience, you have to modify this server. And the server was such a complex, tangled mess that
that modifying it was very hard. Modifying it safely was the bitch. Like that's the part where like you have to make absolutely sure that you don't cause some weird regression. Otherwise your lovely four and a half nines of uptime goes away. And how would you test rollouts of fixes, features, and that type of right. thing? So this is the tricky thing. First, the, the standard process was everyone submits their changes and then you run it through QA and QA starts weeding stuff out. That's why you only have 30 developers because you simply can't test that much over time. So we started pushing the problem upstream. You know, the way I look at it is any code is tested by someone or it's irrelevant. If it's not being used, it's irrelevant. If it is being tested, it's either being tested by the user, which is the most expensive testing mechanism, mm -hmm. or it's being tested during the rollout, or it's being tested by QA, or it's being tested all the way upstream by the developer. Being tested by the developer is the cheapest way to go. Because the developer, if they find the problem right away, can fix it right away. There's no lag time. There's no time to stop and think about it. If it's found by the user, it's the slowest because now it's got a, the problem report has to work its way all the way back upstream to the developer. The developer has to remember what they did a month ago, bring all that context back, fix the thing, launch the fix, and have it go back out to production. So we started by pushing all this stuff back upstream. We were kind of not failing in production to users because we were going slowly. But if we wanted to go faster, um, by the time I joined, Google had come up with a system called Gwistif, which basically took, I don't know, like 100,000 search queries and then took the server that was in production and a new server and it would run those queries through both and it would then do a comparison and be like, what changed? And you look at every change and you say, is that a change I expected or not? And you could kind of go faster that way because you could simulate pretty broad set of testing. It didn't crash. You got results. These results are a little bit right or a little bit wrong. And so we took that system and we started automating it. Each of these systems we built out over time. But that system, for example, over a period of four or five years, we made it better and better and better so that not only would we run it when we launched the system, but then when we would identify the deltas between the old and the new, and we would tie it back to what changed, and we would notify that user and then we started pushing it back so that the developer could run that himself and be like, hey, would just this change versus everything else, what did the code is what it was supposed to do? Here's what it actually did. And then they could start finding stuff in their development environment. And then we started pushing unit tests back up. There was, I don't know, thousands of unit tests when we, when we built them all. You make a change. And if, if you broke something you weren't expecting, then a unit test somewhere would fail. And if it got out to production and we didn't catch it, you had to go back and write a unit test. And if the unit test did fail, you know you did something unexpected. And so what we did was we pushed the burden back up to developers. But the nice thing is that scaled because then we could go to like 100 developers. By the time I left in 2015, we were probably seeing 1,000 developers contributing to that search, that one application hmm. every month. You know, over like 10,000 change lists from 1,000 developers every month. And that wasn't really necessary because that meant that you could harness the energy of a thousand developers innovating on search on that kind of timetable. And we could only uncap that by getting every developer to have high degree of confidence that every change they made was going to be successful so that you, in the place where you had the biggest fan out of, of people working, you had the most information about whether or not it was going to succeed. And when you got down to the push process where you had a very small team trying to get it out the door, they could just focus on saying, we know it's all correct. We're just deploying it. They weren't trying to do the thing of we're deploying it. It may or may not break. We may have to diagnose it. We may have to roll it back. That was too much 
at scale for any one team to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, by the time I left, Search was, I don't know, like three or 4,000 people. You know, we were able to take search changes from 1,000 developers, many of whom were like not in Search. They were other parts of the company who wanted to do things that were really related to Search. And so they were able to push changes as well. But it really came down to building out these development practices to actually scale as the organization scaled. It didn't matter quite so much that you were scaling the number of queries a day. Serving 500 million queries a day and serving 5 billion queries a day, there are a bunch of system systemic shifts you need to make to make that work. But the massive lift there is getting scaling up your number of servers and then dealing with the problem of, well, maybe now we have 10x more scale servers, so man, that the server management problem. But scaling from 100 developers contributing to 1,000 developers contributing is a very complicated problem. Because their ability to step on each other's toes and interfere with each other and do things that are misaligned Mm -hmm. and like break things and have weird, unanticipated behaviors is very, very high. And so that that was the much harder problem that most people really don't focus on when they think about the fact that Google had this massive exponential scale. Right. So I punch in a search query. I see a number of results Mm -hmm. and the amount of time it took. Mm -hmm. How did you guys do that? And how, and how did you keep it fast as the data set for the web grew? Because Google's mission was to organize the world's information. And I'd argue that yeah. to this day, you guys have accomplished that by far and away. Organize the world's information and make it universally accessible. Right. Um, you know, and the server I was responsible for was not so much the organize. There was a crawl system that would go and crawl, you know, deeply complex systems. Like, because it started in web 1.0, you're just crawling web pages, actually. Mm-hmm. That was hard at the time, but it's relatively comparatively easy these days. Now you're crawling systems. That what ins- types of things does Google save? When you crawl something, what are you actually saving? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Well, it's changed over time. In the early days, Google would save everything, right? Mm-hmm. So you crawl it, <laughs> you save the original bytes, you compress it down, and you store it. We would basically be generating, I don't know, ungodly amounts of daily snapshots of the internet. And then you take all that crawl data and you index it. And the indexing is like a hyper-compact, hyper-efficient system designed to basically allow you to do very, very specific queries. So there's the whole crawling system that's feeding data to an indexing system that feeds indexes to the serving systems. So the serving systems would take those indexes and they would store them. And the way that Google was fast is they didn't do anything with disk drives. So disk drives are 10 to 100x slower than RAM. So Google would basically say, okay, you have a terabyte of indexes, you have a terabyte of RAM. And so you take that index, you chop it up into shards, and then you have a bunch of servers who have all of this in memory. And then because you need them to be redundant in case of failure, you have clones of each of those shards because you need that to be available in every country, in every geographic location, you have different clusters of clones of shards. Right. And so imagine if you just thought about this, not with redundancy or availability, imagine you have a simple case where you have an index of a snapshot of the Internet. You have some index servers that can basically answer a question. So the query would come into GWIS. GWIS would basically run it through this thing we called a query parser, which would break it up into a semantic language. If you're like, what is the weather today? It would break it up into this concept of a query, what is, weather, which is the noun thing, and today, which is the temporal part. And it would figure out a tree 
like based query structure and then would pass it down to the index servers and then every index server would serve that question at once. So like imagine you have like a hundred index servers for some small number of milliseconds, every index server is just answering that one question. So you basically get the power of instead of one machine taking 30 seconds to check everything, you have 30 machines taking one second or 300 machines taking 0.1 second or 3000 machines taking 0.01 second to do a very small part. And then the answer is reassembled as you go back up. Hmm. And so the index servers could do a complete search in like 50, 80 milliseconds because they're basically sharding it out and doing it all at once. Then you had to assemble the result back together again and run it through ranking. It's like, okay, now we have all the answers, but how do we rank them? Ranking is actually quite hard. Email sorted by date. Sorting by date is sorting. It's very right, easy. Right. Ranking by relevance means you have to Gotta understand. It. You have yeah. to be like, what's Context. important about this? What's not? Like that part gets super hard. Getting that stuff to happen, that was really tricky. The hardest part about all of this, maybe not the hardest, but one of the surprisingly, incredibly hard, groundbreaking things that Google did was they did snippets. So most places you do a search, you get back 10 search results. And you're like, I see the title of that web page, title of this web page, like which one do I want? I want the third one, fine. What Google would do is because they saved the entire web page and they had indexed into the web page, they so they knew where this term is appearing, they could go pull up that page and pull the sentence around it, right. bold the word, and send it back as a snippet. Right. right. And so therefore, so many times, how many times do you do a search on Google and get the answer just in the results page? Because you can read the snippet, mm-hmm. right? Like that was groundbreaking. And that only worked because Google built this massive distributed system where each individual part of it had one job and it would do that job blindingly fast and it would just basically be like doing as many of them as it could, and then reassembling the answers. And by the way, that was just the search serving side. On the ad side, at the same when a query comes in, like what is the weather today, it gets fired off to the ad side. The ad server did the whole same thing, but it would be for serving ads and ad remnants. And then the servers would merge back together and it would come back to GWIS. We would get a search response, we'd get an ads response, and our job is to now render it in a way that satisfied what type of response it is. If you take search for baseball scores, we're gonna serve you one type of presentation. If you search for financial terms, we're gonna give you a different one. One of the things that Google did exceptionally well was our server basically guaranteed that we would not allow advertising to influence search results. So there was no connection between the two. We would fire off a request to the search side and to the ad side And then when the search results came back in, we would assemble the page. And if the ads results had come in in time, we'd put the ads in. If the ads lost the race, we'd serve it without ads. Hmm. And so you never let ads influence search. And it meant that the ads team had to keep up. So if we made search faster, Google would actually lose revenue until ads caught up. Wow. I mean, it was crazy. Like the company was so idealistic about serving amazing user experiences. And they honestly, I mean, I'm sure at some level they really gave a shit about the money, but we never let that interfere with our engineering decisions. You mm-hmm. know, not not when I was there. So search is the primary revenue engine of Google. Yeah. 
how were new features and services thought of that would either augment search or live within the Google ecosystem? Yeah. I mean, it was complicated because when I joined in 2004, there was search. We just launched Gmail. Mm -hmm. And so Google went from being a kind of a, you know, a single humped camel to two humped camel. You know, yeah. we had Top two, two actions on the internet at the time. Yeah, yeah. it was that's yeah. like this is what you did, right? And Google was busy acquiring tricks rightly and presently, which turned into sheets, docs, and slides eventually, which eventually became plus Gmail, became G Suite, and then Google Workplace. But that was early days. Like they hadn't done mm -hmm. any of that stuff yet. They had just acquired YouTube content creation and content display, right? Um, and so Google was kind of off building in a bunch of different interesting ways and doing a huge number of very long, deep strategic things. Like they were buying up dark fiber because Google had this thesis, which was 100% correct, which is if you make the internet faster, Google makes more money, right? Mm. We could measure it. If, if you increased people's bandwidth to their homes, we made more money on YouTube. Wow. Like just because Google was totally constrained by throughput at hmm. that time. And so there was a huge number of initiatives around that. If you're just drilling in on search, search was kind of interesting because Google at the time was functionally oriented. So there was all of engineering that reported up to Alan Eustace. And then there was all a product that reported up to Marissa Meyer. And so we had these two organizations that, that basically had to work together to launch new things. So the product team was responsible for ideating about what should we build? How should we build it? What does the user really want? What's the user experience? And then they had various engineers in the early days, it was very ad hoc, who would go work on these things in terms of different projects. And where I sat was kind of a relatively new space where I was a team that was only going to focus on infrastructure. So my team didn't write a lot of features. What we did was we built all the guardrails so that feature teams could do these things successfully. So we built things like an experiment system that worked with the ads teams as well so that any developer could try something new, launch it as an experiment, get a certain amount of traffic allocated to it, and then have really good data to show like how is it doing. We always had this thesis that the day before you launch, you want to know what your stats are going to look like the day after, right? Like you want to be able to see around that corner and predict the future. And so a lot of what was happening in search was a couple of things. First, we didn't do really big launches. We were doing these small, organic, experiment-based launches where we would try something new, see if people liked it, and then scale it up. 0.1% of traffic for a week was more than enough for us to be statistically, have statistically significant data to know how something was going to perform. Hmm. And then we would scale it up to 1%, 10%, 50%, 100%. Sooner or later, someone would notice it. It would get picked up by the press. But it was always like a little bit of a moment of joy kind of for drip people. campaign. Yeah. yeah, it was like a drip campaign. I mean, no one really knew. We didn't do a big splashy launch, as far as I know, of anything in search until 2007. Like... Eight years after the company started was the first time I saw. I remember being at home and seeing an ad for Google on TV for search and being like, well, what is this? I, I don't know even how to think about it. And a lot of it was very organically driven from this deep intuition about what the users wanted. I worked a lot with Marissa and I really liked her. She had a very clear and strong opinion about what the right user experience should be and what we should create for our users. And she drove hard towards it. And we built out teams to go after these things and try them. And in some cases, it was super data-driven. 
you talked about you could do a search and you could see in the top right the number of search queries mm -hmm. and the time it took. It turns out weirdly, non-intuitively, that those numbers drove a surprising amount of our revenue. And we found this out because at some point, I think it was Marissa, came along and said, listen, you know what? We've outgrown this. These, no, these numbers, which used to be kind of interesting and exceptional in the early days of the web. It's like, do you really care how big the web is? The numbers aren't even that accurate. The, the timing numbers, like, we, like it, was, it was very a techno-centric approach that we had in the early days. Mm -hmm. So we came in and we ran an experiment to remove those numbers. We saw a significant drop in revenue. When we the complete like why why would it be that removing these like a little bit of statistical data? So we wound up spending a bunch of time diving into it, getting some behavioral analysis coming in, getting eye trackers, figuring out what people are doing. Normally, we would not go to this length. We would just try a bunch of different things until we found an experiment that worked. This one was baffling, and it turns out what happens is. When the page loads, the order in which it loads is it loads the top of the page, then it loads the first search result, then it loads the Chrome, which has those numbers in it, and then it loads some of the right-hand side ads, then it loads the rest of the search results. And it's just the nature of the order, the way that the HTML markup language is structured and the way that we were working around all the idiosyncrasies of web browsers, we just had to put things in this order to make them come out right. But what was happening for humans is that number is something that changes a lot. So it would draw people's attention. Mm. And then it's very normal for humans to track down from wherever they are. So as the page is loading, you'd see people's eyes flick to the top right to look at those numbers and then track down and they would look at the top right-hand side ad. And very often that top right-hand side ad was one that they liked and they wanted to click, but they might not normally look at it. So then they would click it and then they would have a good experience and we would make money. So we turn off this weird little thing in an experiment and we get into this like very strange systemic response. And we were dealing with that at scale all the time in little ways. So we use this very robust experiment system to actually go try these things and not rely on our own intuition because our own intuition was very grounded in a small scale user experience. And it's very, very hard to develop intuitions about what a hundred million humans do at scale mm -hmm. because it's just not, it's outside of yeah, the normal, right. like you just, you kind of know what you do, you know what your friends do, but you have no idea what people on the other side of the planet do commonly until you start running these experiments. So what are some of the surprising commonalities and searches and how many, how many queries are unique? Like what, well, what percentage? I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think the way to think about it is it's a head distribution. So if you were to plot the frequency of any individual query against the percentile of query that get up to there, you would find that like a very small percentage of queries occurs overwhelmingly all the time. So for example, in 2004, the single most popular query in Google was the word Yahoo. Why is it the <laughs> word Yahoo? Well, that's like weird. Like why would you, why would you type Yahoo into Google instead of just typing Yahoo into the address bar? Sure, yeah. Uh, now, to be fair, at the time, if you just typed Yahoo into the address bar, it would have given you an error right. because back then web browsers required you to actually type. www. Yeah, www.yahoo.com. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have to do the slash. Sometimes you don't. Right. You probably have to type HTTP colon slash slash just because it was very pedantic. Most people would set Google as their homepage 
And they were like, but if I just type Yahoo into Google and I hit search, Google will give me the correct URL and I can click on it. So it was easier for people to type Yahoo, grab their mouse, click search, then move their mouse to the first query and click that. Then it was for them to go to the top and type HTTP colon slash slash Yahoo, right? Mm -hmm. You'll notice now these days on Chrome, for example, in all these browsers, the address bar Mm -hmm. is Is the search search engine, right? Yeah. To solve that problem. But if you went asking, going back to your question, if you went back to 2004, what you'd see is that of like four or 500 million queries a day, a solid million of them are the word Yahoo or some something along those lines. You're like, that is just bizarre, right? Whereas at the other end of the continuum, maybe the first, I don't know, four to five percent of queries would have a massive volume because they'd be all queries like that. And then there's a steep drop off and what we call a long tail distribution where there's a distribution curve of, of queries that are popular, but diminishing in popularity. And then way out into like 99th percentile, you've got queries that only occurred once in a day. But like of the 500 million times people did queries, we probably had 100 million unique queries. I mean, I'm just making up numbers, but 20% unique probably is not too far off, maybe 30%. Most people think that what they are doing is unique and they're the only one doing it. But at scale, I mean, today there's a billion plus people using Google. The odds are that if you type in 10 queries today, that there's someone else on the planet who typed in six of them. Right. You know, which seems like that seems so weird. Mm Mm-hmm but it's a big planet and you're aggregating so much data. And we had the ability to see these things in the data. We had the ability to know, Mm -hmm. right? We were able to do things like local search, localizing your search by basically being able to geolocate the origin and realize, oh, actually in the US, when people type W, they mostly want Walmart. But in San Francisco, when people type W, they want warriors, warriors. exactly, right? And this is why we were able to do things like suggest. This is why we were able to do things like instant search. We launched in 2010 this thing where you type a letter and we just do the whole search for you. Because we have such crazy amount of data. Not only do we know what's popular, we know what's popular in your location. And we also have your entire search history. And we have it all in memory where it's like hyper fast response time across a massive fleet of servers. And we can just be monumentally helpful because we kind of know what you're looking for. You're also not looking for warriors. You're looking for warrior tickets tonight, Mm -hmm. right? And we can basically give you exactly what you need. I mean, the problem was not necessarily having the data. It was just writing the features fast enough to keep up with the data insights that we were getting at a ridiculous pace. Hmm. And then making sure that we could launch those things safely. It became a software engineering problem as much as a computer science problem. Hmm. How are you guys able to scale and capture so much market share abroad? Search seems like something that has so much cultural nuance. Yeah. And how did you guys ensure that it would work right? We know Google had two really interesting philosophies. One was, doesn't matter what the problem is, if you assign your, your best engineers to it, the solution that they come up with is matched to the capabilities of the engineer, not the scope of the problem. Hmm. So basically that meant that like if you took a like a reasonable problem, easy, medium, and you assigned it to a junior engineer, you'd get a relatively like solid workable answer. But if you assign it to a great engineer, you'd get a great solution. 
So that was one thing. And then the second thing is Google always leaned towards scale. Google basically always took this approach of saying, whatever we do is going to be usable by a billion users. So whatever systems we build have to scale up to some absurd level. And if you can't scale to an absurd level, then you're launching something which will either fall over the day we launch it or fall over not long thereafter because a billion people are going to want to use it if it's any good. So localization, basically taking the code, which is internationalized, like prepared to be localized, and then localizing it into 180 languages was a very difficult problem. My team, we built out all the internationalization systems. We built it so that when you write a feature, you can use your native language and we could kind of demarcate the parts of it which were local to your native language and then make it available to internationalization teams. But by the time I got to Google in 2004, they'd already cracked this problem. Hmm. They built a system that basically allowed them to crowdsource local translators in every country. And so you could go to Google, you could sign up for free. You didn't get paid to do this, to be a localizer. And then Google would expose to you all of the strings from any new product it was launching, and you would just localize them. And people did this because they loved Google and they wanted Google in their own language. And so you could go to the most esoteric languages, the most far-flung countries, and there'd be someone there who'd be motivated to be like, let me translate this. And so we basically built this massive pipeline where we could get from features through the system to deployment to localization in a week. And people loved doing this work. They translated uh, search into Klingon. Um, We automatically translated it into Pig Latin. These languages, you can go to search right now and you can choose Pig Latin. And there's Mm. a version of search in Pig Latin. I hope they haven't deleted that. There was a whole bunch of really funny, silly things that we did in there. But Google built this thing to scale from an early stage. So we never had to worry about those problems. I mean, there would always be some gaps and there would be some cases where we really wanted to make a splashy launch and we would sometimes pay people to do them, but it was mostly fill in the gaps work. And this is something that Google solved in like 2003, Hmm. you know, way, way, way back. Because even then they had this mindset that it's got to scale. Long before they were even at that scale that's how they just started. That's how they thought mm-hmm. in the early days. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a bit about the culture at Google. Okay. When I was in high school, I remember Google was this magical place where free thought was everywhere. But you guys are still able to build, iterate, and keep pace with this unbelievably fast growth you guys are going through. Mm-hmm. How was that balanced? <laughs> you know, there's this meme inside Google. There's like Google on the outside, and it looks like a Maserati screaming on the front. Right. Google on the inside is this like floating airship that everyone's grafted 10 things onto and it's slowly listing on one side. And, (laughs) and, um, I mean, it's really true. Google internally is surprisingly, especially in the early days was super ad hoc. It was a bunch of incredibly smart, motivated, passionate, talented people busting their ass day in and day out to make it work, but they weren't super long on great repeatable process. That's actually one of the things that I helped with when I was at Google, like building repeatable processes. Because it's one thing to go capture that land to forge ahead. It's another thing to sustain it and retain it, cultivate Mm -hmm. it. And that requires a process shift. One of the things that I was well known for at Google was really bringing the culture of unit testing to engineering at large. And that was much more of a sustainability mechanism. It's like, look, 
you're a smart engineer. You built this amazing thing. It's groundbreaking. You're probably going to write a bunch of papers about it and file patents and it's awesome and it's good for the company and it's wonderful. But like 50 engineers are going to come along behind you and have to maintain this thing. And they're not, maybe, maybe they are, maybe they're not as gifted as you. Maybe they don't understand it. Maybe they're not as motivated. Like they have to, they have to know when they're getting it right and when they're getting it wrong. And I'm not a huge fan for writing tons of documentation that can expire. I'm much more of a, tell me what the system should do and tell it to me in a way that I can verify it. And that's exactly what a unit test is. So a lot of the culture for what we had at Google was building out processes for sustainability that were actually in line with us as a bunch of technologists who wanted to focus on technical solutions at scale. Hmm. Um, and Google had a lot of people who really, really understood this because once you start dealing with this stuff at scale, it's a different world. If you have a problem that happens one in a million, okay, well, if you're doing 500 million queries a day, that's 500 times a day that this thing could happen, right? Today, if Google's doing 30 billion queries a day, if your problem is one in 30 billion, you're like, what are the odds? When you're writing code and you're like, what are the odds that this will break? Well, if it's going to get exercised 30 billion times today, there's a decent chance that some weird confluence of events will kick it off. Mm -hmm. And even if your thing's one in 30 billion, if it doesn't happen today, it's going to happen tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, there's, there's 30 times for it to happen this month alone, right? And if things go wrong, they can go really, really wrong. And so Google very much had a culture of at least understanding the consequences of scale. Now, down the road, that made Google a lot more conservative, right? Before you launch something, you have to have a total belt and suspenders check for every possible way it can go wrong. And if you're too conservative, then you wind up in a situation where you don't move very fast. Mm -hmm. But if you're too aggressive, sometimes you wind up in a situation where you're reckless. And it was very, very difficult to walk that line as the company was going through exponential growth, which it was kind of going through for like all the time. Yeah, yeah right. it was crazy. And so we were always erring on the side of too much or too little and correcting, and correcting and correcting. So we had a culture of trying to like do postmortems without judgment or blame, understand where things went wrong, make the appropriate corrections, put them into effect, try again, try again. And we got good at it. We got good at that meta process of correcting as opposed to getting the right process for any given moment because it just changed too quickly. Let's talk a bit about 20% projects and maintaining that newness and continuing to just push yeah. the boundaries of yep. innovation because that seems to be not necessarily unique to Google, but that's something that drops off quickly, especially as companies go from series A, B, C, D, mm -hmm. you'll get a lot of companies that might even have something in a very special market, but for whatever reason, stop innovating to keep up with demand. Yeah. I mean, it's tough, right? Because in the super early days, you've just got to be laser focused on one thing and get it done, or you've got nothing. And you've got to have ideas, but you've also got to know to shelve them. But then when your first idea is taking off, you need to be investing in your next ideas because you can't just be a one trick pony, mm -hmm. right? Like you've got to have more. And so then you've got to create space for people to go try these things. But then as your business matures, you then have to constrain again and be like, we can't have everyone doing everything. We have to be focused. So you kind of, the pendulum swings back and forth between being hyper-focused and being more open to new ideas. And Google did a pretty good job of it. When I joined, Google had this site called Ideas 
internally where people would just write down the ideas that they had and they would vote them up or vote them down. It was kind of like a Reddit type interface and, um, and discuss them. And a lot of ideas that came out of there went somewhere. They turned into something. And then Google tried to maintain this flexibility to give engineers the right to make their own mistakes and chase their own ideas, but they wanted to rein it in and not have it be what everyone did every day. So I forget who it was who came up with this idea of 20% time, but the idea of 20% time was really that not that you should carve out 20% of your time and find something to do. It was more if you had a cool idea, you could allocate up to 20% of your time on it and no one could tell you not to. Now, this applied to engineers in good standing. There was a bunch of caveats because you have to get your whole organization to get a line behind it. And you'd occasionally see people who would like have five 20% projects and call that a real job. And the generally, you can't like the contract is you need people to do certain work. So you can't really just let people mm-hmm. do anything they wanted. But Google did a really good job of holding on lightly to the reins and not coming down on people too hard when they strayed a little bit. Because it fostered a little bit of this pockets of innovation everywhere, which was great. It was energizing. And by it's a it's a great defensive move, too, in a way, in that you're embracing people's creative ideas instead of making them want to go somewhere else, split, make their own company, whatever. Right. You give people a platform. Right. And Google did this great thing where they encouraged people who were doing 20 percent time to register it and share it and talk about it. So you'd find people who were doing it together. So Google Suggest, Google News, these things were 20% projects that someone came up with and said, what if I did this? Wouldn't it be cool? Let's play with it, right? And so many things that Google did came out of fun 20% projects that you're like, let's just play with it and see where it goes. And if it goes somewhere good, you know, I would go and invest in projects that came out of 20%. It's like, well, okay, this is great. Why don't we make it your full-time job and I'll find you three more people to help you with it and we'll go see what we could do with it. Um, And so it became the way that Google could, in a lightweight fashion, invest in the culture of innovation, invest in employee happiness and satisfaction, and get great results out of it. Now, it had its challenges, right? You would definitely get some people who would abuse it. You'd get people who didn't have the self-control and the discipline to restrain themselves or just didn't like their day job and were just more excited about something else. But those things tended to work themselves out. In any company, you always have some types of management challenges like that. And I I give Google leadership and managers credit for like taking a stand and creating the space for it. Because if they didn't do that, it wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. And I've seen lots of cases where it just doesn't work because the culture isn't right for it. It hasn't been set up for it. Hmm. What was the rough resource split between pushing new features and general maintenance. You know, um, we had this thing called KTLO, keeping the lights on. And we used to try to separate out what's keeping the lights on versus what's feature increases. Um, that was always a tricky beast because a lot of these things are a little bit intertwined. Mm-hmm. Google had this idea of 70, 20, 10. So they said, basically, we're going to spend 70% of our time on the core, mm-hmm. the core feature set the core reliability for search or Gmail or whatever you, what have you, then we'd spend 20% of our time on things that are adjacent. So if you're talking about search and what's adjacent to web search, well, it might be flight search or it might be map search or it might be something adjacent, but still in the same space, but not really part of the core. 
And then 10% would just be greenfield ideas. You work on search. What if we were just working on something completely different? Like you're in search, but let's just work on predictive search or like, you know, reverse search or something which is not even adjacent. We don't even know how we would launch it off of our existing on piggyback on our existing features. But the nice thing is by having that kind of bucketing, it was much easier. If you're in the 70% that's working on the core stuff, then whether you're doing core, keeping the lights on, core feature work, core infrastructure, you know, it's all core. If you're on the 20%, you're working on projects that are related. If you're on the 10%, you're just kind of off doing something that everyone thinks is cool, but might, got, might not get us anywhere. And it was far easier for the for the company to do the accounting that way. Mm-hmm. We had an internal project database called PDB that Larry pushed for that was actually quite effective because it was a database of what everyone's working on. And you could register your 20% projects there as well. And it let you kind of get a sense for what people were working on. But it didn't go down to the granular level of, I'm writing features versus I'm doing maintenance. We kind of expected anyone who was touching the system to do whatever was necessary for that part of the system they were touching. Hmm. Let's talk a bit about secrecy culture and mm. the balance of <laughs> yeah. new stuff. And yep. like you mentioned earlier, you you guys would roll something out. It would be pushed to a billion users and then the news would pick it up and figure out what you guys have done. And how was it different to Apple's secrecy culture? Right, right. That's a great question. I mean, so in the early days, Google just every day was launching a new feature in an experiment and letting it get picked up in the news. Later on, in the 2007 to 2012 timetable, we started introducing bigger launches. We would have a search conference where we would announce what we were doing. And I think that was a little bit in response to Apple because Google in the early days was a massive technology playground. When I joined, their website said that they had 10,000 servers, which people thought was an absurdly large number. The actual number was like 150,000 servers when I joined, Hmm. like 15 times larger than what we told, and we wouldn't tell anybody. In fact, when I joined, we acquired a company that fabricated computers. We relocated that company next to a data center we were building that was enormous so that they could fabricate servers and then walk them across the street and rack them in the data center. Google was designed to scale at such a fantastic rate, but it was a competitive advantage. Our competitive advantage was we were an order of magnitude scale larger and nobody knew it. We would not buy RAM on the open market because the volume of RAM we were buying was so absurd, it would move prices too much. We went upstream and we bought the chips We bought the fabs and we fabricated our own RAM sticks because that way people couldn't tell what we were building. Now, Apple does the same thing, right? A lot of companies do the same thing, but we were doing it very early and not a lot of people had figured this out. So we had this real culture of secrecy that was just about preventing people from understanding how far ahead we were. We were so far ahead. I remember um, we used to massively understate the number of web pages we crawled. So you go to the Google homepage and it would say, we crawl a billion web pages. And people were like, a billion web pages? That's an amazing number. We were actually crawling 10 billion web pages, right? Mm. We just didn't like to talk about it because, you know, after five or six billion, it's kind of junky web pages. But Bing comes along and they're about to launch and they want to one-up us. 
So they come along, I forget the exact numbers. It was something along, like we were in this like race with Yahoo. Yahoo would go to like 1.1 billion. We go to 1.2 billion. You know, it's like the Chicago way, right? Mm -hmm. And Bing comes out and they're going to announce, we have some intel that they're going to announce that they're crawling 4 billion. They built a whole new indexing system to crawl 4 billion. And the night before they launch, we just bumped our number up to 6 billion. Right. I mean, we we have it in reserve, but we had this tremendous advantage that we were so far ahead and we never wanted people to know how far ahead we were because people got complacent. They were like, oh, we just need to do better than Google and Google's only got a billion. We'll aim for two billion. If they knew that we were at 10 billion pushing for 100 billion, their brains would explode and they would go into high gear and they would come after us. Right. And mm-hmm. so we just never, we just never told them. By the time I got, by 2007, we had like a million servers in production. And then we went from those million servers to multi-core, multi-processor, then multi-core. I mean, we, we were really pushing the envelope. So our secrecy was similar to Apple's in that Apple was making these big leap forwards in terms of technology and was being very, very secretive about it. We were doing it all the time. But we never planned on ever announcing it. We never planned on ever disclosing how many servers we had. You just do it and the user experience is better. Exactly. Right. And, and the user would just show up like one day you're searching in Google and you type in a UPS tracking number because I don't know why you just want to know more about it. It winds up in search. And then all of a sudden you see a box that appears. It tells you exactly where your package is. <laughs> yeah. Your brain explodes. Right. Or you type in a flight number and we show you where that flight is in real time. Your brain explodes. You have this moment of absolute magic and wonder. You go and you tell everybody you can. It was the best viral marketing. So we never really wanted to actually blow that by overpromising and underdelivering. In fact, we had a deal on the infrastructure side that... We did not care if somebody announced a launch or not. We would launch it when it was ready, no sooner, no later. So if a launch was threatening reliability or availability of data, we would turn it off. We didn't care. If somebody issued a press release and they looked bad because the thing wasn't on, that wasn't our fault. We all were very firm on it'll be launched when it's ready. And so we didn't have this culture of big splashy launches and as a result we didn't have the pressure that came with it of trying to turn this thing on for a billion users at once at scale those things bite you in the ass and it hurts we only did that we did that in a very small number of occasions and we were very very select about when we would let them do that so you mentioned the launch of bing and always having this headroom of secrecy from what the public knew what yeah. other competitors knew was there ever any fear of bing catching up to you guys or you just knew that I mean, there was no they're way really smart guys working really hard on a problem space where they could see what we were doing and so they could close the gap to us and i would argue that if you go to bing now you would probably get a search experience just as good as google's you know what's funny though when someone asks me to solve a problem and I go on the internet and I search for it, I use Google. If I can't find the answer, I go back to them and I'm say, I say, no, you can't find it. It never even occurs to me to be like, oh, let me try a different search engine. Let me try Yahoo. Let me try Bing. Let me try something else. I use Google and if I can't find the answer, doesn't it doesn't exist. exist. I just move <laughs> on, right? And 
it's weird. I mean, and I worked at Google, so obviously I'm biased, but so many people felt that way. So we were never particularly concerned about Bing. We never talked about Bing. I mean, we did in that one case, but also partially because it was hilarious. Like they're trying to poke us in the eye. We'll, we'll beat them to the punch. But we were just focused on providing the best experience for our users. And that's what we cared about. So I'm sure that there were people in the company and search ranking who really, really cared about making sure we stayed ahead of our competitors. And they probably spent a lot of time on it, but it wasn't in the water in the company. It wasn't every day we would look at what was going on there and, and care about it. I mean, we would notice when they would do things that, that they shouldn't, or we would notice when they got unfair advantages from us. It's a funny story about this in like 2010 or 2009 or so we observed that Bing Microsoft was crawling Google search results and using that to improve their search results. So we would crawl the internet, do an index, and then show that for a given search term. What Microsoft was doing, and I don't know if this was intentional or accidental, I don't ascribe malice or anything, but what was clear is that for certain search terms, they would show the exact same results that we would show, right? And these search terms were somewhat obscure, and it's hard to crawl enough of the internet sometimes to provide the completeness of search results for what we call the deep web, for things that you just have to put in the hours and the days and crawl so much stuff to clean it up to get a result that good. So we did a sting on them. We basically like typed, had like some really esoteric search term. It wasn't even a word. It was like a long string of consonants, right? Nothing you would ever type or would ever exist. And then we crafted a set of search results for that that were fabricated really just weird, mm -hmm. you know, but like very pointed. And then we let that sit. And I think we put a link to it at some point. We must have like exposed it in some way. And then sure enough, within like a couple of weeks, if you went and searched for that query on Bing, you'd get the exact same results for web pages that don't actually exist in the world. And then we made a bunch of hay about that. And there was a bunch of press releases about Bing's copying us. And But that was like one of the few times when we actually tried to do anything about the rivalry in any kind of interesting way. For the most part, we just let them do their own thing. If they could build a better search experience and they were better in some ways, I think they were better with things like sports. They're better to certain types of queries than we were. I think I remember they pushed out flights first. That was cool. They did flights, they did sports. They did a bunch of, I think they were more focused on lifestyle than on completeness. And mm -hmm. Google was kind of built more on completeness and lifestyle second. But if users, preferred that experience, we would try to understand it. We would try to steer towards it, but it never defined our agenda for what we were building. So on obscure searches, I feel like I've noticed over the last, I don't know how many years, the results are kind of, you get a lot of the same web pages mm -hmm. and that just yep. has to be because those are the most commonly traveled sites, right? But I remember 10, 15 years ago, you'd sometimes want that obscure stuff and getting to it, I feel like is increasingly difficult. It is. We built a system called Terra Google, which basically Terra implies very, very large, um, just to crawl everything. It's funny, a friend of mine was having a problem. I'll abbreviate it, but basically his father had a health issue. He needed a translation of a very specific document into uh, maybe Hungarian to basically get a medical procedure for his dad. And he found it on Google at the bottom of a very long set of, of complex search queries. 
he got it to the doctors in Hungary and they performed the operation on his mom or his dad. It was it's one of these wonderful, heartwarming success stories about what it means to crawl the entire internet. And for Grins, he went back and he did that same search in every other engine and they don't have it. They don't have that result. And it just, it's this kind of interesting idea that the sum of all of humanity's information is available to everybody if you can just find it. But finding it is hard because to find it, you have to know where to look, which means someone has to go and look at everything and aggregate it and index it and then make it available to you in some kind of meaningful way. And that is an enormous problem. And Google just committed, just unbelievably committed to the expense in terms of time, uh, like capital expense in terms of machines and to operate a business to provide that. I mean, literally is their mission to make all of the world's information, to organize all of the world's information and make it universally accessible. All of the world's information, universally accessible on every platform and every device in every way in your house. I can ask Google right now and it'll give me the answer in my living room. Like I can do it on my watch. I can do it on my glasses. I can do it on my car. They literally went down that mission to an extreme length because they believe in it. And it's important. It is, it, it is rare, but in those times when Google gives you that answer, it is, it is it's magic. It's, it's magic. It's life changing. It's literally life changing for my friend's father or mother who had this problem, because without it, you simply can't solve some of these problems. And that required an unwavering commitment to this, even when the dollars aren't there. I don't think the dollars are there to justify Terra Google in that way from mm -hmm. a strict ads perspective, in the short term. But in the long term, it means that when you have a user, you have that user and they're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Like they don't even think about the alternative. They are simply so deeply lodged in this ecosystem because they believe that it is the best place to be. You then in the long term, you monetize that user for life. So it's right. a really solid business decision if you think about it on the 10 year, the 50 year time horizon, which mm -hmm. is totally how Google thinks about it. So mission, organize, index the world's information, make it mm -hmm. accessible anywhere, every platform. How does the don't be evil piece fit <laughs> in? And, and then what constituted evil? Well, so here's the thing. Back in the day in 1999 and 2000, do you remember what the web looked like back then? It was all these was like awful. flashy yeah. banner ads and all these websites that are like doesn't work with Internet Explorer or doesn't work with whatever. And it was, it was this wild west of... Everyone trying to get ahead and finding opportunity and taking advantage of it. And there was this idea that you couldn't make money on the web easily, right? It was a scrappy fight. And there was a paradigm shift coming where now people live on the internet. Back then, they kind of didn't. They would visit the internet, right? Mm -hmm. They would live in the real world or some other world. And they would be like using the internet very targeted ways. And so there was this idea that if you really wanted to make money, you had to do a bunch of things that were kind of scummy. You know, you had to grab attention. You had to do all these things that you like... Use 40% of the page for some flashing. Yeah, right? totally. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's not evil per se, but it's certainly not in the it's best interest. It's not pleasant. It's not in the best interest of the user. And it's a vicious circle. It's a spiral that leads you down into worse and worse experiences. And it's not good for the internet. It's not good for the web. And I don't know who came up with that. I mean, it was like Paul Bukheit or someone came up with this idea that, and it was predates me. You just, you don't need to do that to win. Really what they're saying is follow the user, focus on the user and all else follows, which I think was one of their first ones, the, the first things that they said. And it's true. And this is the corollary, which is you don't need to be evil to win. 
you can just focus on the user and do great things. Now, over time, anytime Google makes a mistake or does something wrong, people are like, oh, you're evil. You said don't be evil. So sure. they eventually drop that because it's just it focuses the conversation in a way that's not productive. Mm-hmm. But really what they were saying is we believe we can succeed and build a better world and do great things without having to make a buck on every transaction in a more deeply relational way. And we don't need to be evil in the process. You don't have to be evil. So don't be evil. And man, that was such a wonderful thing when I joined Google in 2004. That was so in their culture. There were so many cases where we could launch this thing and make huge amounts of money, but it's not great for the user. And internally, people would be like, so don't, don't, that's evil. Don't be evil. Like, you don't need to be evil. And it was <laughs> so people really, literally say it. Yeah. It would be yeah. like, but they would say it more like, yeah, but that's evil. We mm. don't need to be evil. Like, mm. we don't have to be evil. It's not like, why cheapen the world and make it a worse place? We don't need to do that. We're better than that. And it was really part of the ethos at Google in a wonderful way. I don't think it was well understood outside the company. I think it was it was a, a soundbite that got hijacked in a bunch of ways. Even inside the company as the company grew. When I joined, the company was like 1,500 people, and now it's like 150,000 people. It's impossible to maintain some of those things as the company grows, no matter how hard you try. And somewhere around like 2010 or so, they just kind of silently dropped it. But I have to say that feeling still exists inside the company for the people I know, which is we are better than that. We don't need, we will never need to do horrible things just to get ahead. I love that. We can focus on what's great in the world and Mm -hmm. we can make it better. And the rest will follow. We deliver great search results. Like the whole idea with we'd get the search results and if ads couldn't keep up, we wouldn't make money. We could have held the search results for five milliseconds to show the ads. Mm -hmm. But is that actually better for the world? No, the reality is the faster we serve the search results, the faster our ads teams have to fight to keep up, the better it is for the world. And we can afford to do that. Mm -hmm. And we did. And it was wonderful. And I wish more companies were like that. How would Google manage situations in which you encountered evil? Let's say a nation requesting censorship of search results. Yep. And that brings me to another topic, truth on the internet and how difficult it is to discern today. I suppose it's on us a bit, the user to figure out what's true, but only to an extent because we're still somewhat trusting what hits that first result on the front page. Yep. There's a bunch of things. Let's talk about the difference between being the platform and being the editor. And let me talk about three different examples. One is if you search for the word Jew, what the results you get. The second is if you go to maps and you look at the satellite view of the White House, what do you see? And the third is, the third and the fourth are related, which is the Digital Millennia Copyright Act and not showing certain results. And the fourth is censorship in China. So let's talk about about these things because they're like real issues you see at scale. The first one is really the most important philosophical thing, which is what is Google search? Google search is a mirror to what's on the internet. It's not what you wish it was or what you want it to be. It's a little bit like parenting. Your kids are you. They're not what you tell them to be. They're Mm -hmm. a mirror to who you are. And Google made this commitment. We show you search results. If the world is a terrible place and the search query you're doing turns up terrible things, we're going to show you those terrible things because that's what we do. We're not editing the world. We can't both tell you that we're showing you reality and then also edit reality. That's unfair. If you take up the editorial pen, Mm -hmm. you have to be a different vehicle. And if you pretend that you're not, 
you're going to lose, right? If you, Sean, went to Google today and did a search and you were like, Google's showing me what it wants to show me, not what is relevant, Mm -hmm. then you've got a real trust issue. Or if Google is just changing some of the content to satisfy its its own ends, like advertising, then you stop trusting it. It's a long-term losing proposition. Mm -hmm. So that blew up in 2006, 2007 around people typing in the word Jew into search results and getting all kinds of hate speech back. And they're being like, what is wrong with you, Google? Can't you tell that this is wrong? The thing about that is, is it's a mirror to what's really happening. The Jewish community doesn't use the word Jew that way, whereas the hate communities target mm-hmm. the Jewish community with the word Jew. So you actually have two completely different non-overlapping internets mm. and you're tapping into one or the other based on the query that you type. And it's really non-intuitive and confusing to people because they're like, but I am not a Jewish person, but when I type that word, I get these like really hateful stuff. And so then you wind up in the situation of like, well, what do you do about it? Do you like put up a disclaimer saying, hey, you've typed this thing, which actually is hate speech and probably do you educate users? It was a very sticky, thorny problem. Mm-hmm. And it's not a technical problem. Like literally the technology says we crawled, we indexed. Th- these are the results. These are the results. And Google was developing its muscle to deal with this stuff. It's a policy question. It's a governance question. It's a complex, sophisticated, nuanced problem. And then you start getting into it with sovereign governance. We launched Maps in 2005. The original Google Maps was a triumph. And in the early days, we had all the satellite imagery. We hadn't launched it yet. The reason why we didn't launch satellite imagery was because of this regulatory issue, which is there are certain parts of the map that governments don't want you to see for perfectly legitimate sovereign reasons. And you live in this, you operate in this sovereign government. And up until this point, it had just been so hard to get this information in one place that no one really cared. It's like there's a very small number of companies that have this data and the governments would just go deal with them. Now, all of a sudden, we were buying all this Navtech and Teleatlas data and low satellite overfly data, stitching all these images together. And now, for the first time, you could look and see what the top of the White House looks like, right? And so Mm -hmm. we had to build entire systems in place to let governments tell us, hey, listen, We are going to impose sovereign sanctions on you if you show this data. Let us tell you up front what you're not allowed to see. And then you have to work within the constraints that you're in. So in the U.S., when we launched this, we had to work with the U.S. government to be like, okay, you have to tell us what you were declaring. What what you don't want shown. what's, What's illegal for us to show, and then we have to work with you. So now we've talked about what the internet has looked like. We talked about what it looks like within our sovereign nation. And I think you'd agree for national security, some of these things you have to follow. But then when you get into the global stage, it gets so hard. We're launching in China. And in China has the Great Firewall. The Great Firewall allows them to simply cut off any individual's access to the internet. And that, from an American perspective, seems very antithetical to how the U.S. works, but it's how it works in China. So if you want to ship a product in China... You have to obey Chinese law. And if they don't like it, they can literally just kick you. They can they can kick you off the Internet in China. So we were faced with this problem of do we want to bring our product to China and improve the world there? And do we want to comply with Chinese sovereign law about what we can and can't show? 
Or do we want to thumb our nose at them and have them kick us off the internet? And we kind of went back and forth. We like did it. We went right up to the line. They would kick us off the internet. They would send all of our traffic to Baidu, which basically built a system to take all Google traffic and serve it. And so anytime we slipped up, we were giving more and more traction to our local competitor there. Mm. But we also didn't love the idea of having to do censorship, which is what they wanted us to do. And so the question really is, if you're in a country like this, you have a choice. Your choice is play ball with them or don't play at all or engage in diplomacy. And we engaged in diplomacy. Now, there's a huge long history. I was on the team that put Google into China. I was on the team that moved Google out of China and into Hong Kong. It was complicated. It was messy. But the problem is that it always gets boiled down in the press to a very simple black and white. And it is an incredibly, Google's approach to it was nuanced and sophisticated approach to a very, very complex corporate interaction with a global multinational problem. And Google did the best that it could, but it was never going to be good enough Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, China held all the cards and they were going to invoke editorial policy and won't go into it at length, but they had a bunch of really, really complex requirements that we had to uphold at all times just to play ball in China. Hmm. That's just what we had to deal with all the time. I guess the point I'm saying is that it's very easy to oil this down and be like, oh, well, Google was evil for playing ball. But the reality is you just don't have that many choices. And it's a big, big market. And it's good for the world if we can expose Chinese users to our product. But you cannot work around the government the government can enforce its laws and they can make life really, really difficult for you. And they weren't seeking sanctions for Google globally, but they could very, very easily just say, you know what, there's no Google in China today and just flip the switch and kick us out, Mm -hmm. which they would do. There are websites up that show the status of Google services in China and accessibility of how much users can access them. And for long stretches at any given time, there were just some services that, you know what, you just can't get to it today, I'm sorry. (laughs) Right. And that drove a rise of Google's competitors in China. Right. That are good. Which was probably their end game anyway. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. 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 They're very smart about it. But we were beginning to encounter problems with Germany and privacy laws. Like privacy coming out of Spain and Germany and, and Europe was like something which we had not really grappled with before. And that became really big. The whole right to be forgotten had a huge impact on the way that we think about um, presenting search results because. Certain things have to be removed. The Digital Millennia Copyright Act, that was a really tough one. Like we're letting people take things out of our index legally. What do we do about it? So we decided we were at least going to tell them that things have been removed. We took that philosophy of saying, well, the user deserves to be informed. And we rolled it forward to China. So when China made us take something out, we would put up a note saying we've taken this out. China was pissed about that. Because they don't want their... They, they don't want their populace to understand yeah. what, what's it's being like hidden. You search for Tenement Square and we say, hey, there's a lot more information about Tenement Square that we're not allowed to show you. <laughs> you know, that went right up to the line where China was like, this is not okay. We're going to throw you out of the country. We were losing market share to Navia in Korea because in Korea, our homepage was incredibly boring. It's like it was blank white page with a search box. 
You look at the Korean homepage, it is so busy, it makes your eyes bleed, but that's what they like. Culturally, mm. that's the right thing there. And so we did not figure out how to get the right level of aesthetics and product feel in all of these little localities. It just took a really long time. And I think we had this kind of very Western approach to it, which is what we like, people should like. And the reality is they'd tolerate it, but they like what they like. And we weren't meeting them where they were. And that created space for local competitors to actually jump in and build a niche for themselves. And now that's what we live with. How about some rapid fire stats that would just right. blow people's minds? Okay. What do you got? All right. In 2004, when I joined, we were doing like four or 500 million queries a day. I think when I left, we were doing probably, probably close to 30 billion queries a day. I don't have the exact numbers in my head, but I mean, it was a lot. Google's data centers were just absurd. We would build our own power plants next to some of our data centers just to generate the power that they needed. In 2005, every millisecond of latency, so every thousandth of a second in latency to serve a search result was worth about a million dollars in revenue to the company annually. So if you could make search go one millisecond faster in terms of just the response time to users, it would generate in aggregate an extra million dollars a year for the company. Just because we were getting it to users faster and they were clicking on search mm -hmm. their uh, ads faster. In 2004, when I joined, talking to one of my coworkers who said the company was going to double in a year. And I was like, that's not possible. He was wrong. We actually tripled that year in terms of number of employees. We went from 2,000 people to 6,000 people in less than a year. Adjusted for splits, when I joined, the IPO price was about 85 bucks a share. Now, if you look at Google plus Google, because they split, it's over $5,000 a share. It's crazy. So all those early Googlers, I mean, some people held, some people sold, but like, I remember meeting up with Sergey one time after the company went public and being like, Hey, Sergey, what do you think the stock's going to go to? He's like, I think it'll go to a thousand. And I was like, that's, uh -huh. that's, that's absurd. Yeah. Like that's, that's a joke. You know, he was wrong, but on the low side. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I remember one time we were hanging out and we were talking crypto, Bitcoin specifically. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that you could probably source the origin of Satoshi at Google. Oh, yeah. And Google so, might be the only organization that could do that. Yeah, I speculate about this because Google was doing so many searches. We had this system called shingles where we basically determined that in the same way that a roof is composed of interlocking shingles, we determined that text was composed of these interlocking shingles of phrases, ideas, things that were semantically related. And we could kind of take a page and decompose it into these shingles, and then we could look at the origin of the shingles and start figuring out where they came from. So the thesis there is that with a large enough corpus of data from any one individual, you could decompose it into shingles and you could find cases where those things resurface on the internet. So you could maybe go back in time and figure out where you'd seen it earlier. And you go forward in time and say, ah, okay, this thing has occurred again in these different places. Now it's a little tricky with Satoshi because he became famous. And mm -hmm. so I'm sure lots of people have looked over his work and there's probably just a lot of noise out there where people have polluted the space by reusing his phrases, et cetera. So you'd have to look at everything he ever wrote. And then we'd have to go back and find stuff that was published earlier, 2004, 2005, 2006 and see if we can find something associated with his name. Google still somewhere has archives of the internet from back then. 
and with enough time and energy could probably go and do a pretty systematic analysis to figure out if they can find his fingerprints. I don't think that they're particularly motivated to go do that work and it wouldn't be cheap, but I do think they have the data. Probably like Google and maybe like the NSA or other like organizations <laughs> that really focus on gathering that type of data and hanging on to it. I mean, NSA is different motivations, different agenda, probably different sources of data altogether. But Google did have, I mean, you imagine like you, Sean, today, like wanted to publish some stuff under a pseudonym. There's probably enough commonality in what you write now. To what you did before. To what you did before. Right. If someone just has access to that data. And I think Google has the data. Right. So be a fun side project someday for <laughs> 20 I mean, project. It wouldn't be cheap yeah. though, because I'm sure all of those old archives are incredibly expensive to get to now. Hmm. They're like filed away on tape. You'd have to bring them back from like glacier type storage. Sure. It take days for each snapshot to re-index it all. Yeah. There was another story you told me once you're in this meeting, you get a call from Elon. Oh Yeah. Yeah, that is a that is a funny story. So Elon is hiring a VP of system software for SpaceX. This is 2013 timetable. I, I don't know. I don't know about this. But one day, a buddy of mine, long term Googler comes to me and says, Hey, listen, I'm thinking about taking this job at SpaceX. I'm down to the final round. Can I provide you as a reference? And I'm, I'm stoked for my friend. I'm thinking this is fantastic. You should you should absolutely take this job if you can get it. And I was like, I'll be happy to be a reference. And I don't think anything of it. And then about three or four days later, I get a ping from another long-term Googler, another good friend of mine. And Mm -hmm. he's like, hey, funny thing. I'm looking at this job, system software, SpaceX. I'm in the final running. Would you be my reference? And I was like, okay, I'll I'll be your other. Sure. You know, that's, you know, I try not to let on. I'm happy for you. Of course, Mm -hmm. you should take this job. I'll be your reference. So then I'm thinking, well, I wonder what's going to happen here. And I give them both the same contact info. And then I get a call maybe two days later from their recruiter. And the recruiter, he just can't stop laughing. He doesn't know how to even have this phone call with me. He's like, you have to tell me which of these guys to hire. And I was like, I'm not going to choose between my friends. Like, they're both awesome. I'll tell you about each one of them individually. But, like, you have to decide which one of these guys you're going to hire. Like, that's on you. And then I think nothing of it. Two days later, I'm in a, I'm in a one-on-one with a buddy of mine, Rob, and we're on video conference and I get a phone call and normally I don't answer my phone during meetings. And, but you know, I, I didn't get the level of spam calls I get these days. And I guess, I don't know why that day I just answered the phone. I answered the phone and I hear this voice. It says, Hey Bart, this is Elon. Do you have a minute to talk? Now, funny thing about me, my name is spelled B-H-A-R-A-T. So most people, if they are Indian, they say, but right. If they are, um, American, or if they know me, they call me Bart. But if they don't know me, they call me Barat. But Elon says Bart. So that means that A, he's either been prepped or B, it's not Elon. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I'm being punked. And I say to him, I was like, hey, listen, supposing you are Elon, what do you want to talk about? And he's like, well, we've got these two candidates. And I was like, oh, it probably is Elon. And I realized <laughs> I can't have this conversation now. And normally I would have just put it off, but like introduce themselves to Elon. I'm like, I, I, I got to pay attention. So I'm like, listen, Elon, I really want to talk to you right now, but I'm in the middle of a meeting. Can I get back to you after this meeting? And he's like, okay, listen, you know, I've got a bunch of meetings and board meetings. I'm flying to London, but just call me whenever and I'll step out. And so I go back to my video conference and I'd put it on mute. And my friend Rob, he's like, Bart, what phone call did you just get? Like that was, was like, so, so I was like, 
It's like, I think I just got cold called by Elon. That's really weird. <laughs> so anyways, a long story short. And then, of course, Elon's team calls me and they're like, so you just got a phone call from Elon. Here's what's going to happen. And we plan some time. And anyway, he was calling me because he wanted to offer me the job. He's like, OK, well, obviously, you've got these two guys who both provided you as a reference. And I looked at your resume and you could obviously do this job. So why don't you do the job and you'll just bring them with you? And I was like, I can't say yes to that. I mean, it's not okay for I'm the reference. I sure. can't take the right, job. Right. right. So, so, so I'm like saying no, and he doesn't take no for an answer. So I think I probably had to say no to him 20 times and he's hitting me with the whole, it's for the good of humanity. We're putting a habitable human base on Mars. Like, I mean, like, what are you really <laughs> pull, doing really in your pull life? Like, I know he's like, what are you doing in your life? This is obviously more important. And of course he's totally right. It's a good job, but I can't take it because I'm the reference. It's not okay. Anyway, so I, of course, decline, 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 decline. He eventually makes up his mind. They hire someone that the person they hired was fantastic. It worked out really well. But there you go. I was I was cold called and, and offered a job. Elon. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was pretty, pretty funny moment. I still have his phone number in my. Um, so my son comes <laughs> home. We had just bought a Tesla like two days before. Mm-hmm. Um, my son comes home from school and I was like, guess who called? And he's like, I don't know. So I show him and I put the name in and he's like, does he call everyone who buys a Tesla? <laughs> I was like, no, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So what were a couple of some of the biggest oh shit moments? <laughs> well, oh gosh, so many of them. On Gwis, we used to say, if you haven't cause some kind of outage for a million people you probably or like some kind of screw up you, you're not really officially on the team because you were dealing with stuff at scale i mean we definitely did some things where we pushed significant systems out and then had regressions like one time i was responsible for the team in 2007 that launched the universal navigation bar across all of google properties so you gotta remember back in like 2004 2005 you'd go to search and then there would be like these little tabs. You could be like image search. You know, they still have them now, but they're just different. And then Gmail was a whole separate property. If you wanted to get from search to Gmail, you probably had to type in the words Gmail. Whereas now you can click through navigation menus for mm-hmm. like different properties. Mm-hmm. I built that navigation menu for all of those. I and a very small team of people. And we had to do it on very short notice. And we had to launch it across all Google properties at once. And that was a, it was like a, Really fun technical challenge. It was very hard. We managed to launch it. And it was one of those launches that we had to launch on a tight timetable and it couldn't fail. But when we launched it, we suddenly discovered we were down one to one and a half points of global revenue. And all the smoking guns led back to this one launch. So I had to go lead a war room for six weeks with a bunch of engineers to go figure it out and get it back and diagnose it and find and fix the problem. And it took us forever. But we had a bunch of oh shit moments like that, which they were less acute. They were more like, wow, we got to go deal with this. One really acute oh shit moment was Google had this thing called a trust server. So imagine when you do a search, we send the request out to the indexes and we're going to get responses back. But then we're also doing a bunch of other things. We send it to these things we called one box servers. So it's like, oh, this might be a sports request. Like maybe we need sports scores. Let's query the servers that are specifically for sports. One of the servers we had was called the trust server. There was a time in 2005, 2006, 2007 when the internet was beginning to really have a lot of bad influences on it. And people were doing a lot of phishing and malware where they were trying to infect your computer. And so they would put together a search response that was really targeted for what you're looking for, but would take you to a bad place. 
And so a bunch of engineers built this thing called the trust server where they would basically go find every site on the internet and rank it based on how trustworthy it was. And then we would give you, if the site had trust issues, we would mark it as untrustworthy. And people learn pretty quickly that if Google tells you a site is untrustworthy, yeah, maybe you shouldn't click it. Mm -hmm. These days, by the way, we don't do it that way. If you click through on it, Chrome will tell you. Like it's hmm. baked into the browser now at the trust level. Same basic server functionality, but we don't splat it all over the search results page. But I remember in winter of 2007 or so, trust server has an outage and marks every single search result as untrustworthy. Mark the entire internet <laughs> no, like the as untrustworthy. Internet. Yeah. Everything melts down at this point because now... Everyone who's doing searches is getting a response back saying every search result is untrustworthy. Google's brand reputation is so high that it's actually stopping people from clicking on results that they have every reason to believe are trustworthy. You type Yahoo, you type Yahoo every day, you get the Yahoo thing and you click it. And now Google's like, Yahoo's untrustworthy. And you're like, ah, what do I do? Who do I trust? What do I do? So this turns into a full-blown meltdown. I am in Tahoe on a ski trip with a bunch of friends and I've, I've certainly had a few drinks at this point. And I get this call saying, you know, the internet is untrustworthy and I'm getting a call. <laughs> it's getting, it's getting escalated up from our site reliability engineers or SREs up to the guy who's on call, who's like a, you know, he's not, he's like a relatively junior engineer, but he's experienced. And he calls me and he's like, Bart, what is going on? And we assemble a war room. And as with all of these things, it's no one individual's fault. It's a system fault. We had designed the system such that certain types of updates could cause certain types of problems. And then we had designed the GWIS system, which called into it to ask the question in such a way that we didn't have any safety checks. It didn't occur to us to be like, hey, if this system goes haywire and marks the entire world as untrustworthy, maybe we shouldn't trust that system. We should rely on the fact that the world is 99% trustworthy and we should have some safety checks. And we hadn't kind of up and down the line, we hadn't planned for these occurrences all happening at once. And we had to go into a war room and figure out, well, how do we shut this system down and how do we do damage control? And I think we figured out a way to do a quick update that just disabled that feature. Actually, I think the feature was still there. We just changed the font color so that you couldn't see it. That, um, so that, that was the duct tape. That, yeah, you know, we, we like solution. slapped some yeah, duct tape right. on it quickly. And then we went back and we fixed it. And we had a war room. And then we sorted it out. And then we did a postmortem. We got everyone in a room and we're like, what are all the things that we did? And what's all the things that went wrong? And what could we do next time? I seem to recall, not every year, but like it seemed to happen when I was in Tahoe more than once. <laughs> but okay, so another one. Oh shit moments. Okay. One time I'm on my way to Tahoe. They're all like on the way to Tahoe. I'm on the way to Tahoe with my family. I am on a team called Conabit. And Conabit is the emergency response system. And Google is a really interesting, fun emergency response system because so many people look at it. And we had done things like when there was a disaster, we would on the homepage be like, there was a disaster. You can donate to the Red Cross. And we put up a link to the Red Cross. We quickly learned not to do this because if we put up a link to the Red Cross, it was like focusing a laser on their website that would burn a Just hole. Just break it. Yeah, it was like dosing denial of service, distributed mm -hmm. denial of service. So we couldn't put links to those sites anymore because we got too big. So we would have to do it ourselves. So I remember one time, this is in, must have been 2005, 2006, because my kids were really little. We were on our way to Tahoe. We hit a snowstorm. We can't go through, so we turn around and we get a hotel for the night. And we can, we're just cramming into one room because everyone's done this. So my wife and I are in bed. My kids are sleeping on the floor. And at 3 a.m., I get a phone call. 
And I'm not on call per se, except that my rule with my team is always when things go wrong, you call me and I'll, I'll help you because very often just to navigate getting to the right people, it just helps to have someone a little higher up mm-hmm. in altitude in the company to help. So I get this call, but it's not from someone on my team. It's from Craig Neville Manning. Now, Craig Neville Manning was one of the earliest engineers at Google. He was the site lead for the New York office. He started the New York office. Super smart, super nice guy. He calls me up and he's like, hey, Bart, sorry to wake you up. I know it's 3 a.m. We've had a earthquake in Japan and there is a tsunami heading for the western coast of Hawaii at 400 miles an hour. We have six hours to tell people to get to high ground. Let's go. And so we had to figure out how to push a message to the Google homepage that was geo-targeted to only the western side of Hawaii, because we don't cause a panic, right? Telling people to get to high ground. We weren't the only ones doing this, but we're a very powerful tool because a lot of people who don't watch TV and don't look at things go to Google and will see the stuff on the homepage and will tell their friends. So we had six hours starting at 3 a.m. or less, five hours starting at 3 a.m., West Coast time to get the right message up, to get the geo-targeting out, to get it tested, to push it live. And you're in a situation where minutes count because if people don't get the message, the amount of time people have from when they get the message they have to is stuff, relevant. Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, you know, we were always kind of sitting in these weird spot where we would have to deal with stuff like this. It's a lot of responsibility. That's... It was. It was meaningful, though. Mm-hmm. It was the mission. This is a very, very relevant bit of the world's information right now that you need to know. If you go to Google and you search for my left arm is numb and I have shooting pains, they will say, you're having a heart attack. Call a doctor. Mm-hmm. Being able to actually track it from that search query to give you the relevant bit of information right then can change people's lives. It can affect people's lives. When the Arab Spring happened, people were spray painting the IP addresses of search servers on walls so that they could get access to Google search when the government shut off DNS, Hmm. right? That stuff that we did changed people's lives at scale. There's someone having a heart attack right now. There's someone typing in the, the heart attack symptoms, the heart attack right, symptoms yeah. into Google right now as we talk. It doesn't matter when anyone's listening to this. At the mm-hmm. moment that you're listening to this, someone's typing that in right now because it's a billion people and someone is having a heart attack right now. And so you have this ability to actually affect the outcomes, not just on an individual, but for individuals at global scale. And that is a game changer. And that platform came with it, this tremendous responsibility of If you have the ability to warn people that a tsunami is coming, you have to warn people that Mm -hmm. you don't have a choice in what you get to do Mm -hmm. in those moments. And so we were always dealing with this. We were always dealing with aspects of, okay, yes, what is the ramifications of this censorship request from China? What are the ramifications of dealing with the local government? How are we giving people this information right when they need it? And sometimes it's sports scores. Sometimes it's you're having a heart attack. We were able to use this to do flu tracker. Craig Neville Manning, again, he's the guy who did uh, flu tracker. We found people doing searches for flu symptoms. We geolocated their searches, put them on a map, and we could feed that data to the CDC and tell them where the next influenza outbreak is going to happen. Because we could front run all of their data because we would know it when people would be trying to figure it out for themselves. Mm -hmm. And we could tell people. I don't know whether we ever went to this level because I think that it borders on alarmist, but like 
it's relevant to know that if everyone around you is searching for this symptom, you might be in a high hotspot. Like yeah. A hotspot. Like, do you want to know that? Mm-hmm. Do should we tell you that or not? These were the types of problems we were grappling with. What is the moral and ethical requirement to actually surface this data? Because not only do we know it and can we aggregate it and do the data analysis on it, which almost nobody else could, but we're also the only person talking to you right now. Right. And the only person <laughs> who actually knows who you are. And we're not allowed to share that for privacy reasons. We can't share that data with anyone else. So like mm. in this moment, and we have a couple of hundred milliseconds, we have to make a really tough decision on do we try to save your life or not? You get it wrong and people get pissed at you and they sue you because it's all kinds of uncanny valley. Mm-hmm. It's like that that whole thing where Target was sending announcements to sending congratulations pregnancy, to right, for pregnancy, yeah. right? Exactly. Because yeah. they know and you screw it up the wrong way and people are pissed at you for violating their privacy. Mm-hmm. You know, Google Now which would pop up a little alert on your phone saying, hey, you're going to be late for work. You should leave five minutes sooner. You're like, what? That, that's, that's, how do you know? How do you know that I'm at home? How do you know where my work is? How do you know that I'm going to be late? How do you know the route? It's, well, duh, we, of course we have all this data. Mm-hmm. You've told us across 15 different systems what your home is, what your work is. We know your phone has a GPS on. We know all this stuff. We've simply aggregated it, done the math, and now we're being helpful. But the problem is users don't understand how you got from here to there. And they're so freaked out. They're like, you're spying on me. You're looking at me through your Nest camera. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and because they don't realize it. Right. (laughs) Right. And so the challenge is how do you bring users along in that journey to help them understand that it's all consensual, voluntary shared data. We are simply aggregating it in a way Mm -hmm. and adding value. Google, by the way, did some really cool shit with this. My buddy Brian Fitzpatrick launched a group called Google Takeout which you can use now to actually take your data out of Google when you want to. Hmm. I just had to transfer all of my dad's photos from his consumer Gmail to our Google Workspace family one, a family account. And I could use takeout to basically download all of his photos and push them into, you know, his different account. And it's nice to know that I can delete it and it'll be gone from all Google servers in 30 days. And I can take it with me whenever I want. I can take Hmm. my Gmail with me and then delete it. And Google won't hang on to it anymore. I think they've really done a good job in that stuff. But doing that stuff at scale for like, I don't know, 800 million Gmail users or a billion Gmail users. I don't know how many they have now. It's an insane technical challenge. It's a marvel of modern engineering that doesn't happen by accident and takes huge amounts of time and effort. And I think people don't really appreciate how hard that is to do at scale because they're so used to just their own experience. Mm -hmm. Right. They're like, well, this is my experience. And they don't think there's another billion people using this and it's really hard to make changes for a billion users. Like it's mind-bogglingly hard to mm-hmm. make changes for a billion users. So maybe let's zoom out and talk a bit more about you personally. You've done a lot of amazing things in tech. Multiple advisory roles. Now you're stepping into Coinbase. That's going to be fun. What are some things culturally, operationally, ethos-wise you will forever take with you that you think was probably unique to Google? Yeah, it was nice to work at a company that didn't have to sacrifice its ideals. Larry and Sergey were just so aspirational. They wanted to make a better world. They, they worked very hard. They're very smart. But they're also very, very lucky to have a product and a business model and a, and, a, and a moment in time when they could actually do something that was such a powerful platform. 
I think there's a lot of ways they could have given in to just enjoying it, just spending the money, just never growing up, not evolving, not pushing themselves to learn and grow. I have been unbelievably amazed at how high a standard they held, Larry especially, how high a standard he held, how much he pushed people to do better, how much he was unsatisfied with the status quo, how undaunted he was by the difficulty of the problem. These were things that I had never seen before in my career, and I haven't really seen too much of it since. And you can argue that, yeah, okay, if I had a bajillion dollars, I would do the same. And maybe that's true, maybe it's not. I mean, there's a lot of other billionaires out there. Not all of them are like that. But Google's culture embodied this idea of we can do better. We should do better. The world deserves more from us than we're giving. It was a worthy aspirational goal to be like, that's not good enough. Focus more on what the users want and do what's good for the world. It continues to be a reminder to me that that's possible. It's possible to hold to these high ideals. It's possible to and, make... And still reach the heights And they still did. win. Yeah, yeah. And still win, right. right? It's I mean, Google's growth is still absurd, right? Still absurd right now. And they've shown that you can win. You don't have to be evil. You don't have to stoop to the short emotions, the fast emotions, the fear, the greed. You can win. And it's actually what I feel like I learned from Google is I'd rather lose than win poorly. Right. Mm. I'd rather try to do the right thing. Because, you know, one of the things that Google really gave me that I hadn't had in my prior jobs was meaning and purpose. And this idea that this is for the betterment of the world in some meaningful way. Now, it was awesome to do it with smart people. It was unbelievable to do it with all the resources we had. Those things were great. It was great to be part of a successful company. But most of those people would have called in rich and bailed. And the fact that so many stayed for so long is because it was meaningful. You do great things and people use your product. Every time I see someone using search, I'm happy. I built that. I worked mm -hmm. on that. You know, I used to drive my kids crazy because they'd come to me and be like, how do I do this? And I'd be like, I spent a decade building a search answer to answer that question <laughs> for you. Go look at it. You know, like this right. is like for me, I have such an attachment to this idea that you can improve the world around you by focusing on the right things from the culture and the ethos. It really started from the founders that they built something which is incredibly enduring. And even now at 150,000 people, my guess is that that's still alive and well, at least in, in parts of the company. And that's, that's pretty great. I'll take that with me everywhere.